This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick. Ho, ho, Hanukkah. And Leah Leibowitz. Happy Hanukkah to all. Or to those of you who know the PJ Library book, Hoppy Hanukkah with the rabbits, a hoppy Hanukkah to all of you. Oh, I thought I thought it was a just yeah, that a was book about beer, about IPAs. Yeah, uh, in, no, in the, that's no, no, no. The, holiday from the season. Hebrew Beer Brewing Company. This year for Hanukkah 5783, we're doing something a little bit different and ever so special. And I want to ask you, Leo, because this was your idea. You conceived this. You birthed it to tell us about this year's Hanukkah special. I will say he didn't birth it. As a, as someone who has birthed something, <laughs> okay, I was overselling I the work involved. I feel like this was a little easier. I have no problem with that objection. <laughs> How about he he conceived it to to put a funner, less arduous spin on it? How about that? Is that better? <laughs> Guys, it was that much fun, Liel. As the conceiver of the as the convener and conceiver of this year's Hanukkah episode, the, the, the communer. Tell us what you had in mind. Mark, Stephanie, in all seriousness, these are dark times. We here in the show, we tell a lot of jokes. We like to make light of a lot of things. We make Holocaust jokes. We joke about Kanye West and Dave Chappelle and Kyrie Irving. And sometimes it's easy to sort of lose track of how scary things really have gotten for a lot of us. A lot of us really didn't have the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the bingo card. You know, a lot of us don't really feel certain of what to do and, and how to go about life now that things look much darker. And so I think there is a really elemental solution, which is really the time-honored Jewish solution, which is very simple. When things get dark, you become the light. So what I thought we would do this year is rather than just have a regular episode, we would pick eight stories, each of which will bring a little light into this world. Some major, some minor, all delightful. Each of these stories is what you may even consider to be a small miracle in its own right. And each of these stories will make things seem just a little bit better. Yeah. How does that sound? Light it up. So, Mark, I would like you to be the shamash here. I would like you to kick us off by lighting the first little candle. Who who do we have? Who brought some light into All right. your world? I, Liel, I loved this challenge. You put this challenge to me and Stephanie and the rest of the team. And you said, show us an American Jewish miracle. And I thought back to this story I've wanted to do for a while. I remember reading some articles a few years ago about how Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania, which was a historically Lutheran school, as its name indicates, had become super Jewy. And I thought we should do that segment a number of years ago. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then over the past year, as I was hosting Gatecrashers about the history of Jews in the Ivy League, where they faced so much opposition and they learned how to kind of scale the walls and crash through the gates, I was thinking about colleges and, and colleges where Jews have made it. And I remembered the Muhlenberg story that just in the past 20 or 30 years, this historically German Lutheran liberal arts college had actively gone out and sought Jews, that they'd wanted to make it a happier place for Jews. And they had succeeded. Make Muhlenberg Modi'in again. Exactly. I asked Muhlenberg College's Melissa Falk, the Dean of Admissions, and herself an alumna of Muhlenberg, to tell us about Muhlenberg, the Jewish school. My name's Melissa Falk. I'm the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. 
at Muhlenberg College, which is in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We're fully undergraduate, so we are absolutely teaching focused, about 1,900 students total. Probably about a quarter of our students would be my best estimate, would, you know, are Jewish. Muhlenberg has historically always been in that list of the schools Jews choose. Even though it's a Lutheran-affiliated school, and it still is, you would think that, you know, Muhlenberg wouldn't be showing off on the list with those, you know, kind of major flagship universities. You know, yeshiva, right, what we have. I'm a Muhlenberg graduate as well. I graduated in 92, so my connection to the community spans over 30 years. I asked Melissa if there was a moment in time when Muhlenberg's rep as a Jewish school kind of reached a tipping point, when it just became known as a place where Jews could go and feel comfortable. I don't know that there was a tipping point per se, because Jewish life has really been a constant. Perhaps it's become more interesting to people in the last decade, because we're ending up as a place that folks recommend where students can live Jewishly. Melissa and I talked about the urban legend, again, starting around 2010, that there'd been something of a surge And she said that that wasn't really true, that Muhlenberg has long been a Protestant school where Jews felt at home. Really, Jewish population has been pretty consistently anywhere from 20 to 35 percent of our student community. My understanding, though, is that Muhlenberg has been a place even pre-World War I that included and admitted Jewish students when lots of other institutions weren't. I remember that article, the headline, it was at the Gefili Inquirer, like, Lutheran College is a great place for Jewish students. But I think what happens oftentimes in Jewish culture, too, is that word of mouth is really significant, right? It's those conversations in synagogue at the high holidays. It's the shared experience of camp. So I asked Melissa, what was it like when you got to Muhlenberg as an undergraduate? You know, I grew up in a Reformed Jewish household. So just in terms of sort of the understanding of, okay, first time, kind of away from home, what happens in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Is there a community potentially that I could opt into? I remember specifically my mom indicating that a member of our temple had sent his eldest daughter to Muhlenberg. So it was okay. It kind of got the stamp of approval in the Jewish community, and that had resonated with my mom. And so there was less of a concern specifically about going to a school that didn't seemingly appear to be kind of forwardly Jewish. I will say when my mom dropped me off, because back then for Hillel, you know, you wrote the $36 check or whatever it was, a contribution to Hillel at the time. And I remember handing me the check and saying, I just want you to go once, please. (laughs) So um, as an undergraduate, I didn't go that often, but felt very comfortable knowing that there was a visible and strong Jewish life and presence on campus. But something did change a few years back. A key person arrived at Muhlenberg and jump-started Jewish life. Hillel emerged at that point, and a lot of it was out of response to a Jewish community that already existed. And it happened because in the late 80s, we hired our first professor in Judaic studies, Jewish studies. Um, And with him came his partner, who became the first and founding Hillel director at Muhlenberg. Patty Middleman was a legendary force and person whose legacy still continues in so many ways, for me personally, but certainly for Jewish life here at the college. And she was somebody who really provided a platform for Hillel to literally offer a place at the table for everybody. I asked Melissa what the Gentiles at Muhlenberg think about it being a super Jewish school. I think students value it, I do. I think that heightens and elevates their learning here and their experiences. And they get to ask questions probably for the first time that probably you couldn't ask before, right? In a safe space, like tell me why this is your practice or you know, kind of help me understand what kosher really is, right? As ever, it all comes back to food. 
a little over 10 years ago, we dedicated extended space. So our um, LaFell Center for Jewish Life, which is currently named as our Hillel um, house, is actually, I think it's close to 20,000 square feet of student programming space. There's study space and hangout space and um, a kosher kitchen when previously when we didn't have integrated kosher dining on campus. That seats up to 300 people. We also have number one campus food in the state. That includes the integrated kosher dining experience. And we do have mashkiach on staff. A mashkiach is a Jewish professional who oversees the kitchen to make sure that everything is kosher. Having it integrated again sort of aligns with sort of that original premise that, yes, we're serving students and being responsive to their needs and their observance, but we're also making sure the entire community has access to that experience also so there's fuller understanding. We joke about the fact that the blondies are probably the favorite dessert in the dining hall uniformly among everybody on campus, which I think, you know, kind of says something, right? Just to be clear, these are the kosher blondies approved by the school's mashkiach. The vast majority of our students don't keep kosher, but the commitment that the college made to make sure that students who specifically have that level of observance, they could still eat in the full dining hall with their friends, but still be able to keep kosher. Students were very adamant about the fact, we don't want a separate dining hall. We don't want to kind of be in the separate kosher dining hall like a lot of universities. We want it to be with our friends, with the faculty that teach us. We want to be able to have meals together, but we want to be able to keep kosher. And Melissa's kids grew up at the Muhlenberg Hillel. I remember bringing my young children to Passover Cedar and just the ability to kind of be with students when they couldn't be with their families, um, the ability to be with faculty and staff who couldn't go home, the ability, you know, for my son to do the four questions, right, in a room full of college students when he's five, you know, and just loving the attention, you know. But I think it's the everyday stuff. That's Melissa Falk of Muhlenberg College. Quinn Waller, and coming into this holiday season, I really wanted to up my Hanukkah song game. So I reached out to an Orthodox song leader consultant at large, Josh Warshawski, to learn some new Hanukkah songs. Josh Warshawski, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thanks so much, Quinn. Last time we had you on, you were here to talk about Passover songs. And today you're here to talk about Hanukkah songs. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I converted to Judaism in August. Mazel tov. Thank you. So this year is my first Hanukkah as a Jew. I know the dreidel song. I know Hanukkah, oh Hanukkah. That is it. Will you teach me and teach our listeners a song that we and I should use for this Hanukkah season. Yes, definitely. I would love to do that. That would be such an honor. Here's one or two that I think are just like really great ones. So this one is actually, it's in Ladino, which is like a mixture of Hebrew and Spanish. It's a song called Ocho Candelicas, which is about lighting up eight candles. Do do you know this one already? Have you heard this before? I've heard of it. I haven't heard it. It's by Flori Jagoda. Uh, who wrote a whole bunch of different melodies in Ladino. I think this might might be the most popular. And uh, so it goes like this. Hanukkah linda sta aquí. Ocho candelas para mí. Hanukkah linda sta aquí. 
ocho candelas para mí. Oh, una candelica, dos candelicas, tres candelicas, cuatro candelicas, cinco candelicas, seis candelicas, siete candelicas, ocho candelas para mí. So fun. It slaps. That's great. That one is a, it's definitely a slapper. Yes. Okay, I'll give you one other one. This one is like a, a classic Israeli Hanukkah song, which I also just think is, I learned it when I was a kid. And it's one of those ones where like, the kids always do like a cute dance and they like march around. It's called Banu Choshech. The words are Banu Choshech Legaresh. It means I've come to banish the darkness. Be'adenu orva esh. In my hand is light and fire. Kol echad hu or katan, every one of us is a small flame. Vekulanu or etan, but together we're a mighty flame. Sura choshech, let's go. Get, go away darkness, halashchor, go away darkness. Sura, run away, mipnea or, from among the light. The light is coming to banish the darkness. So, it goes like this. Banu choshech legaresh, beyadeinu or vaesh. Kol echad or katan, vekulan or etan, sura choshech halashchor, sura mipnei haor, sura choshech halashchor, sura mipnei haor. That one's really awesome. And I, I actually have one Hanukkah song that if you want to hear that one too, I could I share that one. I would love to hear it. Yeah, okay. I would love to hear it. <laughs> This is a Hanukkah song that I wrote uh, two years ago because uh, someone asked me if I knew any melodies for Hanerot Halalu, uh, which is another prayer that we say right after the, we light the candles. It's a prayer that actually explains all of the rules of what you're allowed to do with the candles. And I didn't know any songs that had all the words in it. So I decided that I would try and write one. I love this particular prayer because there's some instructions about what you're supposed to do with the Hanukkah candles after you light them, right? Some candles or some lights, you could like sit and, and read by them or use them to cook or other ones. With the Hanukkah candles, what are you allowed to do with them? nothing. The only thing you could do with them is just sit and enjoy and just bask in the glory and like give your family a hug and just look at the candles, right? They're just there to announce the miracle and remember the miracle and just be. And we don't have any other rules in Judaism, I think, that tell you to just be present, right? Nobody, nobody ever says there's no mitzvah, that, no commandment that's just like do nothing. This is the one where it's like just sit and enjoy and be with your family and feel what that's like. So I love that idea. So I wanted there to be a melody that we could use to express what that's what's actually happening in that moment. Hanerot halalu an anu madlikim, the lights that we light, they're holy, and we don't have anything to do with them except remember the miracles, remember the comforts, remember all these things that happened that allowed us to be where we are today. So it goes like this. Hanerot halalu Amazing. I love it. Josh Warshawski, thank you so much for coming on Unorthodox for Hanukkah. Thanks for having me, Quinn. It's so great to get to chat with you. Thanks for having me here. Oh,
this year, Liel met a man named Steve Ferenz at a party. He was a listener to our show, and while standing by the bar, he told Liel, have I got a story for you. And he sure did. His uncle, Ben Ferenz, as a 25-year-old, became one of the youngest and most influential American prosecutors of the trials of war criminals before the Nuremberg Military Tribunals. He helped prosecute some of the most vile Nazi war criminals. Later, he was instrumental in founding the International Criminal Court. Ben is now 102, and he and Steve join me to discuss their unique family story. Ben and Steve, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Happy to join my uncle. Ben, it really is an honor to speak with you. Can you tell me about your role in Nuremberg and the subsequent war crimes trials? The Nuremberg (laughs) trial, the International Military Tribunal, was winding up. I had graduated, honor student. The big law firms that I approached said, how many clients can you bring? I had no clients. My clients... All they had was a tattoo on their arm, and so I couldn't find a job. But one day I got a telegram from Pentagon saying, Dear sir, we'd like to talk to you. They had gotten a report, apparently from one of my Harvard professors, Sheldon Gluck, who had written a book on war crimes. And he had hired me to do the research for the book. And I had read everything that had ever been written on war crimes. And he said, You want to do war crime stuff? You, you go talk to Benny. First thing, I got an interview from uh, Telford Taylor. He said, well, I've been checking up on your military record, and I see that you're occasionally insubordinate. I said, sorry, sir, that's not correct. I am not occasionally insubordinate. I'm usually insubordinate. I said, I will not follow an order which I know is stupid or illegal. And uh, they said, we're going to set up 12 additional trials. And we would like you to participate in that. I said, well, sit down, sir. I'll tell you. Turn me loose. Just turn me loose. I'll bring in the evidence for the trials. I called up my then fiance. Unfortunately, she just died about a year and a half ago. I called her from the Pentagon. I said, how would you like to go to Europe for a brief honeymoon? Well, she said, I'd love it. I said, you got it. Yeah, so so you become chief prosecutor in this Einsatzgruppen case, right? I set up a team, and their job was to collect the evidence. And uh, one of my researchers, he said, look what I found. And he brings me a big pile of papers, and it's called, I'm showing off of my German now, Eragnus Meldingen aus der UDSSR. And it was daily reports of special German groups. And their assignment said, what do we do about Endlösung der Judenfrage, the final solution to the Jewish question? And their answer was very simple. You kill them all. You kill them all. Men, women, and children. That was their plan. Four Einsatzgruppen, A, B, C, and D, about 3,000 men. That was their assignment. Kill all the Jews. Do the same to the gypsies and the same to anybody else you think might pose a threat to the Third Reich Reich. So that was my assignment. And I flew with that down to Telford Taylor in Nuremberg. 
where he was preparing other, other trials against the doctors, lawyers, etc. Uh, and I said, you've got to put on a new trial. He said, we can't put on a new trial. The lawyers are already all assigned. The Pentagon isn't very keen on these trials anyway. <laughs> so we just don't have the staff. We don't have anybody to do it. And I said, look, I have in my hand here, mass murder, mass murder of a million people. Don't tell me you can't put them on trial. He said, well, can you do it in addition to your other work? And I said, sure. So he said, okay, then you do it. You're in charge. So I became the chief prosecutor of the biggest murder trial in human history. Uh, I indicted the 24 top Nazis who were in charge of this. 24, because we only had 24 seats in the Jackson trial, International Military Tribunal. So I was limited to pick 24 out of 3,000 men, each one of whom was a mass murderer, beyond doubt. And so I got appointed chief prosecutor of the biggest murder trial in human history. My first case, I had never been in a courtroom before. <laughs> that is amazing. And you did pretty well for your first case because... My first case, I rested my case in two days and I convicted all of them. And you were 27 years old. I was 27 years old. My first case. <laughs> How does this undercurrent of justice run through your family? I imagine, Ben, that's something that you must have imparted to your children into, or was sort of an undercurrent. I mean, was that just sort of a theme of, of your entire life, even beyond just your career? Well, one of the things that my cousin Don said in the uh, documentary Prosecuting Evil is that the kids would show up at the dinner table, Uncle Benny would preside, and he would basically ask each and every one of my cousins, there were three girls and a boy, what have you done to save humanity or save the world today? <laughs> That's a little heavier than most conversations that those of us who ate dinner around the, with our moms and dads would probably encounter. But that was Uncle Benny's way of starting a conversation with his children. I recognize what he said is accurate because every, every supper table where the family came together, I was often traveling and busy and wouldn't make it. But every time we were together, I would ask the question, as Don had reported, what have you done for mankind today? And I tried to instill in my children a sense of responsibility for not only their own behavior, but also for the behavior of their friends and those whom they knew. I think with Don, it has worked pretty well. He's made a career of it. And I, of course, have also made a career of it. Well, I'm, I'm so grateful to both of you. And it's such a privilege to speak with both of you. And thank you for being guests on our podcast. You're very welcome. It was an honor. Hey everyone, it's producer Robert Scaramuccia. You don't need to be a Jew to know that a Torah scroll doesn't come out of a 3D printer. It's also not made in China. It's written by hand, on parchment, by a special person called a sofer, or a scribe. Or rather, make that a soferit. Alexandra Kasser is one of very, very few female Torah scroll scribes, and a founding member of the Stom Scribes Collective a guild for female scribes. I went down to Fairfax, Virginia to hang with her and learn what life is like when your job is to write down the word of God, one careful letter at a time.
The physicality of the Torah scroll is a really interesting thing that most people don't really think about. Most Jews don't think like, how heavy is the Torah scroll? What does it smell like? Does it get moldy if it gets left out in the humidity? The answer is yes, by the way. Alexandra Kasser gets up close and personal with Torah scrolls. She can tell you the average scroll weighs about 25 pounds, has a thin plaster coating, and smells a bit like a dog who's recently had a bath. She knows these things because she's a soferet, or a Jewish scribe. She writes and repairs the parts of Jewish practice you can see and touch and break. The tefillin worn for prayers, the mezuzahs stuck to door frames, the megillahs read at Purim with the story of Esther. But mostly the Torah scrolls used by synagogues for services, bar mitzvahs, everything. When I sit down in front of a specific Torah scroll for the first time, the first thing I think of is how many people use this Torah scroll for a family celebration, for a simcha, as we would say in Hebrew or Yiddish, being called up to the Torah before they get married or because a child was born. How many people's lives was this Torah a part of? And now I'm responsible to all of them for keeping it in good health. According to Jewish law, you can only read from a Torah scroll if each of its letters are kosher whole, proportional, and identifiable. There are 300,000 letters in the five books of Moses, all written by hand, one fallible ink stroke at a time. So Alex has a steady stream of work. People often ask me, when you're writing, are you thinking about the story? And the truth is, for myself, I'm not even thinking about the whole word. I'm just thinking about that letter or even the constituent parts of the letter, because every little stroke needs to be perfect in order to remain in that scroll. Certainly, if you find a crack in a letter, that's a, an urgent situation, and you need to call in the scribal emergency services and have it fixed. And a lot of scribes do go on these little calls where somebody finds a cracked or chipped letter, and they have to go in and fix it because they need that Torah scroll to be used soon. Sometimes, Alex sounds less like a scribe and more like a surgeon. Her tools are a quill and some ink, but also a scalpel for scraping chipped letters off parchment. But the thing that separates scribal work from surgical work is that in her job, sometimes you just got to bring a five-year-old into the operating room. So if there's a question of whether a letter looks like an intermediate between two letters, so for example, if a letter is a resh, which makes an R sound, or if it's a final chaf, which makes a ch sound, they look kind of similar. Somebody might say, well, this is either a long resh or a short chaf, what is it? You find a child, and it needs to be a child who's not too smart and not too dumb, and you cover up all of the surrounding letters, and you say, hey kid, what does this look like? And you take your answer from that. Alex says this happens all the time. To do scribal work, you don't need a flowing beard or 30 years of experience. You just need to know how to look. I think a lot of people, Jewish or not Jewish, consider scribal arts very much to be the realm of like elderly, somber rabbis, perhaps only ultra-Orthodox rabbis. But I think it's really wonderful to say that when we need a definitive answer on which letter something is, we go to a child, not even a particularly smart child. He can't be particularly smart. So I love telling kids that. I love telling them that they have a specific place in this world of Jewish scribal arts, and they love hearing it. Alex herself also has a specific place in the world of Jewish scribal arts. 
Her Hebrew title is Soferet, instead of the much more common Sofer. A male scribe is called a Sofer and a female scribe is called a Soferet. Interestingly, I think that most women who do this job really enjoy the title of Soferet, perhaps because it's novel and do not aspire to be called a Sofer. There are hundreds of male scribes out there, but according to Alex, she might be one of only a few dozen female scribes in the world. Certainly the number of sofrot or soferets that exist in the world is teeny tiny, is statistically negligible. Our influence is outsized to our numbers, but I'm fine with that. People seem very taken with us. A few years ago, Alex helped found Stom Scribes, an organization for non-traditional and often female scribes. They share knowledge and make referrals and keep connected from New York to Israel to New Zealand. Alex lives in Virginia, which mostly impacts her work in that she'd love to have an apprentice, but it's kind of hard to find one in Fairfax, Virginia. Her location shines through in other ways too. Can you tell me about the, the quill that you're using? Um, this quill is a wild turkey feather quill, actually from a turkey that my husband shot. Yeah, quill can be made from any kosher animals, flight feathers. Technically, you don't have to use a quill when working on a Torah, but a quill gives you a finer line. So Alex uses a quill, one she made herself for her hand, one that only fits her hand, Harry Potter style. Exactly, it's exactly like everybody gets their own wand. Honestly, what Alex does is sort of magical. These are 100-foot-long rolls of parchment made of kosher animal skin and sewn together with string made from cow intestine. They're old and have sometimes been through a lot. Many of the scrolls she's worked on survived the Holocaust. They have quirks and scars. Some have letters embellished by some scribe in Poland in 1902 or new panels sewn in that used to be Megillah's because new parchment was so hard to find back then. Alex has to sift through what's kosher and what's not, letter by letter. She loves it. When you look at a Torah scroll, you're looking at a year of a person's life, maybe 18 months, maybe two years. It's almost like a mother becoming pregnant and giving birth. It's something that's produced with a tremendous amount of effort. And that effort can be seen in even the smallest strokes. And then when we go back to review it, to give it its little checkup, what I'm doing is reviewing those strokes, seeing are they broken, are they faded, are they still present, are there chips left out? Because if even one letter is chipped or cracked, you would not be able to read from the scroll. What you learn talking to Alex about her work is that the Torah scroll is more than just parchment. It's even more than a holy book at least in the way that most people think about holy books. If Alex is a doctor, then the Torah scroll is a patient, treated almost like a person. It's born from organic materials. It ages and it dies. Jewish law from the creation of a scroll onwards gives the scroll a life. When a Torah scroll reaches the end of its life, it's buried in a Jewish cemetery. And if you ever go to a Jewish cemetery, you might see a headstone that says Sefer Torah. We do sometimes come up against 
congregants or leadership who really want to continue to use a scroll even though it has reached the end of its life and it can no longer be made kosher. And that's often a really complicated thing to deal with. Alex extends lifespans. When I visited her, she had a scroll from Czechoslovakia that was two centuries old. That's a lot of stitching and re-lettering to keep something going. Alex was likely the first female scribe to work on it, and definitely the first to use a quill made from a recently deceased Virginian turkey. Like I said, in the scribal arts, Alexandra Kasser has a specific and special place. is uh, just some practicing I was doing, but I am using a scalpel to um, gently scrape off the top layer of ink on an old letter because that is how we remove ink when you're dealing with ink on parchment. You can use erasers to kind of get rid of the, um, the extra schmutz, that's a technical term, that's sitting on the parchment, but the only way to get ink off of parchment is to use a blade. A question I get a lot is, well, why does a Torah scroll need to be handwritten? I even saw that somebody in Germany created a robot that can hold a pen and write a Torah scroll, which is kind of cool. I'm glad it's not going to put me out of a job because Jewish law says that's not okay. So when you're writing, you make a guide stroke to get the ink off your quill. And then you always pull your quill. You don't push it. The truth is, there are a lot of things that I believe God could perhaps have set up the universe to do more easily, but by having us expend more effort to do it, we are partners with him in creating it. This is like a nice small one, nice small Torah. There is a story of a, that's told in the Mishnah in an early Jewish source of a scribe who found himself before a certain rabbi, and the rabbi said, what's your job? And the man said, I'm a scribe. And he said, be very careful in your work because it's the work of heaven, and if you were to make an error on one letter, it might destroy the whole world. That's something I take very seriously in that if that rabbi felt that it was necessary to say that, he obviously felt very strongly. It's very, very satisfying to look at a line that you've just written with all the raised ink See how beautiful and shiny it is. Hey, it's producer Josh Cross. Before we get back to the rest of the show, I wanted to play you a little extra Hanukkah music. This is a new song from friend of the show, Kosha Dills and Gangsta Grass, called Happy Chinooka. Happy Chinooka. Alright, we're gonna do it like this. Started back in 164 BC in Jerusalem with my click the Maccabees. They got attacked by Greeks. We had nothing but hard to win, and guess what? Bro, that is free. Holy Temple in the Great Craze. One night of oil, and it lasts for eight days. We got menorahs now, and they try to go and kill us in the streets. So every night at party, we just drink it and we eat. Jewish kids already know what Chanukah is. All y'all really about to know what Chanukah is. Nora in the window, candles lit. What Chanukah is. Repping for a better future, kid. Happy Chanukah. <laughs> 
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Most of us, Hanukkah is something we look forward to because, well, we've celebrated it our entire lives. The guilt, the gifts, the donuts, we know precisely what to expect. But what if, what if this is your first Hanukkah? What if you had just converted to Judaism, like literally just a few months ago, and your very first festival of lights as a Jew takes place amidst a lot of darkness all around you from rising anti-Semitism to the Hitler-praising rants of Kanye West. Journalist, fashion designer, and former Real Housewives cast member and all-around kick-ass Jew, Leah McSweeney, sat down with me to talk about Hanukkah, ask a few questions, and explain why she's doubling down on her Jewish pride. And if you like this conversation, you could very soon find it online as a video where you could see us it's part of an eight-video series brought to you by the awesome organization Six Point that I am very proud to be a part of. So check it out. We will put a link in the show notes. So first Hanukkah, excitement level? Off the charts. Strong to very, very strong. Very strong. Okay. Three things that you're most looking forward to for Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah party mm-hmm. that I got invited to. So I'm really excited about that. Shopping for my daughter and like integrating her into my Judaism. So she'll be a fan of Hanukkah. And bringing out my beautiful menorah that my friend gave me and lighting the candles. Now, are you going to do the thing with your daughter that so many of us do that like night one is like an okay gift. Night two is a great gift. Night three is the best gift. No, I don't know how and this it's, goes. It's so I'm like, glad you're telling me. Okay, is this how so, it goes? It's so, like, because so you start off like not. You can't like, you can't go all the, out right. eight nights. And you then can't they're going to be disappointed. Off, you start with like something big-ish, but not too big. Okay. You build a little bit up. Night three or four, that's when it's like. That's when you know, it's like. You that's go, a payload. Okay. Then. Five, six, seven. Hey, some lip gloss. Here's a pencil. As we say, a tchotchke. And then day eight, which is the whole, it's a little bit of the George Costanza move. You know, I gave in your honor to some fictitious charity, Uh, but we let our kids choose their charity of choice. Like we would give money to whatever you want just to teach you that this holiday season is about giving, not only receiving. I had no idea. You just taught me how to do Hanukkah. Saved you some money there. Thank you. So um, 
Leah, you're a Jew by choice. I am. And you returned home at a really interesting point. Like yes. season 5,789 of the drama. It's not the best season we've had in America. What's it like to you uh, being Jewish in Kanye and Fuentes and uh, kind of rising anti-Semitism? I actually in think that this is one of the best times for Jews. I mean, not that I remember in my lifetime and maybe because I wasn't paying attention because I wasn't a Jew, but Judaism is at the center of pop culture, mainstream conversation. People who have never thought about anti-Semitism before or didn't believe it existed before now is seeing that it does. Yet American Jews have spent 50 years climbing up the ladder of, of American culture, American society. And so many of us feel so comfortable that all of a sudden we're almost shocked that there is still anti-Semitism. Right. As someone who's, you know, newer to this drama, do you feel the same sense of like, oh, of course they hate us. That's the way it's always been. No, I'm, I didn't understand that it was at this level of hatred. Like I, I did not know that. I mean, I knew it existed. I knew it was there. And, you know, I wrote an article about the anti-Semitism within the Women's March, mm -hmm. and that was eye-opening for me. But I did not, like, I didn't know that Kanye West was, like, obsessed with Jews and, like, hated Jews, like, and loved Hitler. Like, this is crazy to me. Like, I love this guy's music. Like, I thought he was, like, so creative and cool. And, like, I, I just, I had no idea. So, look, I'm going to make you a special one-time-only offer. To quote the great Rabbi Nick Kroll, by the power of this vest on me, I now uh, give you the choice to have some buyer's remorse. You're new, you joined a club, uh, <laughs> and then Kanye, Kyrie, all this rising anti-Semitism, all this nonsense started. People may not have prepared you for this in your conversion classes. Yeah. This is probably not a scenario you were looking forward to. It's like buying a new car and then discovering it has a really weird smell you can't get rid of. You can now officially leave. What do you choose? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. I'm proud to be Jewish. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I can't. It's like, this is who I am. I did a lot of work to convert. I love my Jewish family and friends and... I am definitely proud to be Jewish. Here's my concern. Here's something that I'm sure you've noticed. We do all the time. You ask us something and we're like, it's really hard to be a Jew. Let us point out how things are difficult. Like you go to any Jewish organization and the meeting at some point is be like, let's talk about Jewish continuity or Israel and terrorism or the Holocaust. <laughs> like who in their right mind would join a club in which the main preoccupations are like, Everyone hates us. We're all in constant peril. You're right. And so You're right. Is there, is there okay, so we have like, to have parties. Is, is we that have to have we, fun Jewish doing? parties together and eat good Jewish food and be amongst ourselves and talk and invite our allies in to hang out. Can you tell me of a moment, because this is the holiday, and because we don't have any real good Hallmark movies, which, by the way, is if we— <laughs> We need to change— Well, I mean, if, if we, we ran Hollywood, the media, right, right? Then I mean, why would imagine? Right. <laughs> um, so I want a Hallmark moment. I want a really touching, emotional moment in which Leah McSweeney felt this kind of real big Jewish surge of happiness and pride. So I was at a dinner maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago, it was the month before Hanukkah. It was the okay. month yeah. before Hanukkah and all through the city. No, so I was at this, I was at a dinner with maybe 20 to 25 young Jewish people. 
And I was hosting it with a friend and it was to discuss anti-Semitism and it was to discuss um, using our platforms in a way to help. And I felt so honored to be there and to be a part of it. And I think like I also told someone that was there, I was like, this was my actual like conversion. Like I became Jewish tonight, not like in the mikvah, you know. Or this was your bat mitzvah. It was, you gave, yeah, you became, which I kind of, yeah. I actually kind of need a bat mitzvah, I think. Would you like to do one right now? <laughs> no, because I want to party. You could, oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll work on that. If you could receive any present for Hanukkah, what would it be? I would not only like to receive this myself, but I would like to have the whole world receive this. I think that um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and every other social media platform should blow up and not exist anymore and become obsolete. Amen, Sela. <laughs> Leah, the first time you uh, you visit Disney World, you get a sticker, like first time the happiest place on earth. So it is my pleasure <laughs> by way of welcoming you to the Jewish people to welcome you to the happiest holiday on earth and hand you this Thank you. Menorah. Oh my God, thank you so much. This is incredible. Leah McSweeney, happy holiday. Happy holidays. <laughs> all about telling stories. Genesis, the Exodus, the Maccabees, and their little jug of oil. These are the great stories that have kept us together as a people for millennia. So keeping the art of Jewish storytelling alive isn't just a nice cultural perk. It's essential. I talked to Panina Shram, the legendary Jewish storyteller, about the tales that move her and help her move others. Stories are conversations. It's my one-word definition of storytelling. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. We are all storytellers because each of us is a homo narens, a storytelling human, a storytelling animal. That's all we have. We have stories. In fact, I want to just give you a very short 12-word poem, if I may. It's by Muriel Ruckheiser. Listen, listen. The world is made up of stories, not of atoms. That's it, isn't it? But she tells it right, because that's what we have, is stories to exchange, to make friends uh, from foes, so it's all by stories. What is the role of storytelling within Judaism and Jewish tradition? First of all, God creates the world with a word. We are a people of the word. Torah begins with not the laws, but with stories in the beginning. Why did Torah begin with stories? When a child goes to a yeshiva the first uh, year, it's right away the laws. And so 
you think about what's important for children and for humans. You can give the greatest gift to your little daughter, Edith, or any children or anyone. The sense of wonder, the sense of curiosity. Those are tremendous treasured gifts. You see, stories ask questions. How to live? By what values did your people live? Who are your people, the Jewish people? How to die? What values should you be transmitting to the next generation? Because stories are our legacies. That's it. And of course, there is no substitute for the human voice. It's the voice that's flexible with rate, pitch, volume, because actually the human voice is a musical instrument. And when somebody says your name or a word, it's not just a bunch of syllables. It has rhythm and movement and gesture and silence, all of that. So from day one, when that baby is born, and even maybe before, you see, to sing and to tell stories, it soothes them. The rhythm, the movement, the dancing around the room as you're telling them or singing. And so the comfort, because you're sharing this experience, this conversation, this dialogue. And so it is amazing. And also to learn wisdom and warnings. And also you can learn hope through stories. And that's another essential that we have to have is hope. I mean, your name is the longest and shortest story in the world. Sitting in your in your library looking at the bookshelves, you have tons of books. Many of them are your own anthologies. And there's one over there that's called Jewish Stories, One T- Generation Tells Another. And I think that idea of continuity of, of storytelling is so is so vital to our our Jewish experience. And as as you mentioned, you know, I do think about this a lot with my daughter. So I think that I would love nothing more than to hear a story. Would you share a Hanukkah story with us? With pleasure. So this is a trickster story. And I don't know whether all or most of the cultures in the world have trickster characters. Uh, A trickster is not just like, ha ha, I tricked you. No, it's an anti-hero who is always there to teach somebody a lesson and teaches the person a lesson, not with violence, but rather with words. His weapon is words. In the Jewish oral tradition, we have two tricksters. In the Sephardic world, they borrow and make their own the Arabic trickster, Joha. And in Eastern Europe, it's Herschle of Ostropol, which is in the Ukraine. So this is Herschle, of Ostropol. Remember, he is poor, hungry, always looking for some money. Herschel was thinking very hard about the next few puppets, particularly where they would come from. Ah, holidays are especially good times for earning a few puppets, and there's certainly 
plenty of holidays in Judaism. So what's the next, young Tiff? Ah, Hanukkah. Hanukkah! <laughs> and what does every Jew need for the time of Hanukkah? A menorah. <laughs> so Herschelis set out to find a tin maker who would make a bag full of menorahs for him, all of the same size and the same design. And finally, he found one who unbelievably agreed to his terms. <laughs> what are his terms? <laughs> that the tin maker would give Herschelis the menorahs on consignment. And only after Herschelis got paid would the tin maker also get paid. So during the last few days before Hanukkah, Herschelis went around the town selling his menorahs. On the morning before Hanukkah, with only a few menorahs left, Herschelis entered the shop of a wealthy shopkeeper who was as stingy as he was rude. Herschelis pulled a menorah from his bag and placed it on the table. It's time to buy the menorah, he said, and this is the finest one I have, especially suited for such a, a prominent citizen as yourself. I have saved this one just for you. The wealthy shopkeeper barely glanced up from his papers and replied, No, 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 I'm not interested. I have a menorah from last year and that will do just fine. Uh, my wife will find it and prepare it for the lighting. But Herschler was not to be put off by a simple no. <laughs> Instead, he changed the subject. Uh, do you like latkes? Herschelah asked him. I love latkes. Oh, 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 and patting his large stomach. Well, said Herschelah. Well then, can you imagine your wife searching all afternoon for the menorah and discovering when she finally finds it that one of the candle holders has broken off? Then what would she do? I'll tell you what she would do. She would have to search through the town for another menorah. And who knows if she could even find one just before the Yontif begins. And by then, <laughs> it would be almost dark. And then she wouldn't have time to peel all the potatoes and grate them and make the delicious potato latkes you love so much. And what kind of Yontif, what kind of Yontif would it be without lighting the candles and no latkes? Think how sorry you would be that you didn't buy this menorah from me. By now, all the shopkeeper wanted was to be rid of Herschel. So he bought the menorah. Herschel quickly left the shop and rushed to the shopkeeper's house. And when the shopkeeper's wife came to the door, Herschel was standing there with a menorah in his hand. <laughs> I just came from your husband's shop and he asked me to tell you not to look for last year's menorah. He said, you should just buy a new one from me. And Herschel held the menorah out to the shopkeeper's wife. And well, if the husband says, <laughs> the wife does. 
And so what could she do? She bought the menorah from Herschler. That evening, the wealthy man arrived home with the menorah he had bought from Herschler, safely bundled in a layers of paper. And when he unwrapped it, he carried into the living room for his wife to see. And there she stood, holding a menorah exactly like the one he carried. Where did you get that menorah? questioned the husband. From Herschler, of course, just like you told me to do. I told you? Who told you? And the husband shouted and suddenly turned and said, Oh, Herschele, oh, that Herschele has tricked us both into buying a menorah from him. And the wealthy man motioned angrily to his servant and said, Find Herschele and bring him directly back here to me. The servant went to Herschele's house. And finding him there, he immediately said, My master wants to see you immediately. Come quickly before it's time to light the Hanukkah menorah. Oh, your master must want to buy a menorah from me. Oh, my menorahs are the best there are. But why did he wait until the last minute to buy one? By the time I go to his house and sell him a menorah and return home, it will be past the time to light the candles. So I'll tell you what. Why don't you just give me the money and I'll give you the menorah and you can take it to your master. That's what happened. And that's how to sell a menorah. Hanukkah wicks, total nine. The candles to light are eight. The days of the week are seven. The latkes to eat are six. The pennies to give are five. The sides of a dreidel are four. Menorahs the miser bought are three. The blessings over the candles, except for the first night, are two. And Herschele, master trickster, is one. And now the tale is done. Benina, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. J. Crew, here's a question. We talk a lot on this show about community, but what makes a community, well, a community? Sure, you need rabbis, teachers, parents, children, volunteers, all those really matter. But community also needs institutions, not just the obvious ones like the synagogue or the JCC, but also the ones you can't live without, like your kosher butcher. I paid a visit to Fisher Brothers on the Upper West Side, the iconic kosher butcher shop that's been feeding my family for years, to talk about how to build community one flanken at a time. Hey, she's a What are you doing, guy? Beef stew and beef sliced potato. 
That sound you just heard? That will soon be my family's dinner. It's the sound of a chicken being quartered at Fisher Brothers and Leslie, a kosher butcher that's been feeding the Leibovitzes along with many of our neighbors in the Upper West Side for decades. Fisher Brothers was originally started across the street in 1949 by Lewis and Morris Fisher. My father-in-law, Leslie Niederman, joined them a couple of years later. He was a Holocaust survivor. This is Paul. He's the president and co-owner of Fisher Brothers and Leslie. And uh, quickly became integral to the business, and they made him a partner. So it became Fisher Brothers and Leslie. The Fisher Brothers passed away probably... 40 years ago, it was uh, Leslie and then my brother-in-law, Steve, and myself. I wanted to talk to Paul about what it's like to run an old-school business that's become a focal point of the community. An old-school business that has no frills, no apps, no marketing. An old-school business that still keeps a big old notebook where it writes down everything you'd ordered and then bills you at the end of the month like people used to do before smartphones, before computers, before even credit cards. Yes, it was a conscious decision. The business was started long before there were credit cards. And so that we could deliver to customers, we set up uh, house accounts, which were done in a big ledger. I did everything by hand. At the end of the month, I would myself physically write out statements and mail them to each customer. But the advantage to doing that was that we got to know our customers. You know, I'd, Somebody would call up the phone, I would know their voice, I would know their address, even when they come in the store. And so it became very personal. And we have families that have been with us for several generations. As we became computerized, and uh, for a while we discouraged credit cards, because if you use a credit card, you're just a number. We would try and get people to set up accounts, and this way we got to know our customers. And that's worked very well. Paul isn't exaggerating. Not infrequently, I'll get a call from him or someone else at Fisher Brothers telling me maybe that there's some good lamb in stock or that I really don't want to miss out on the brisket today. They call me because they know me, because they know what I like to order, because they know what I like to eat, which is a weirdly intimate relationship to have with your butcher, but one that feels wonderful. And hey, I'm not the only one. I even had a person call me the other week. You know, you haven't heard from me in a few weeks. I feel really bad. My wife got injured. She broke her hip. But you'll hear from us. <laughs> so I was like, thanks for letting me know. And I hope she feels better. But uh, that's the relationship we have. And it's not just the customers that keep coming back. I've got my son's father-in-law, Seth Novak, helping me manage the business. And uh, Kevin Sanchez is out for lunch. He used to be a delivery guy and is now one of our key managers. Like you said, it's a, fam a family business. Even and the employees are here long-term long, long -term and rising up. Yes, most of our employees have been here for more than 20 years. We try and keep them uh, happy, and uh, so far we're, we're successful. Happy employees, happy customers, great meat. I almost forgot what I came in here for. Uh, so I'll take a, a pound of the uh, sliced um, roasted turkey. And I'll take two, let's say two and a half pounds of the chicken thighs, boneless, skinless. Thighs, boneless, no skin. Oh, and you know what? And, and for dinner tonight, I'll take a, a pound of, uh, do you have just like ground turkey? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay, so a pound of ground turkey too. Pound of chopped turkey. Okay. Very good. Okay, we'll send that up this afternoon. The meat 
arrived that afternoon. And it was delicious. But that was hardly the point. The point was knowing that there's a place out there I can call that cares about me. Not some big corporation that sees me as a line on a balance sheet. Not some application that optimizes and monetizes and utilizes me as big data. But Paul, who's been here for 30 years and really knows the people he serves. It may not be much in comparison to, say, frontline workers. We don't think of selling two and a half pounds of chicken thighs as a particularly heroic or even meaningful act. But really, if you stop to think about it, if you think of how many of the daily interactions our parents or grandparents took for granted have now been replaced by automated processes or faceless transactions, about how many small businesses we used to love have shut down and how drastically our main streets have changed as a result, If you think about all that, then you realize that the fact that Paul is still here, standing there behind the small counter of the no-frills shop, his father-in-law helped make a thriving business back when Eisenhower was president. If you think about all that, then you have to find it extraordinary. And you have to realize that what you're getting when you shop at a place like this isn't just delicious chicken or great beef or lamb, but precisely that oh-so-elusive thing we all talk about and yearn for non-stop, yet none of us seems to have. What you get when you shop at a place like this is community. And that, really, that's a small miracle. Stephanie Butnick here, reporting live from your local post office. Have you ever wondered how that Hanukkah stamp came to be? The one you've been sticking on your holiday cards this month before you drop them in the mail? That forever stamp with the orange and yellow menorah and a purple and blue background. What if I told you that behind every stamp produced by the U.S. Postal Service, including all 15 Hanukkah stamps since they first started them in 1996, is an artist, an idea, and an official United States Postal Service art director. In the case of this year's official USPS Hanukkah stamp, the artist is Jeanette Coven oren and the art director is Ethel Kessler. I'm Ethel Kessler. I'm one of the four art directors for stamps. I have been so fortunate from the very first assignment that I got, which was a breast cancer stamp that was gonna raise money for breast cancer research. And there had never been a stamp before that raised money in the US. That stamp came out in 1998. It's now raised almost $100 million for breast cancer research. I'm very proud of that. But once you do one stamp, you're only as good as your next stamp. It seems like each of the art directors has a slightly different background in design or aesthetic. And so each of us gets the projects that seem to fit us. I actually counted, I think this is my seventh Hanukkah stamp over the last 20 years. I am Jewish and so I feel like it's an honor to do a stamp that friends of mine who are sending out packages or note cards or whatever, that they use that. 
I've just learned so much over time about how small can you make something before it doesn't read, how much detail can you get in, how much information can you get in. It is not as easy as you think it is. What makes a good stamp? Tell us your secrets. <laughs> you know, as much information as you can get onto or into the stamp, but have it look as simple as possible. These are going down to one by one and a half inches. It's actually smaller than that. No matter what you do, you've got to get it down to that size and have it read. The idea of how much can you get onto a stamp and have it as simple as possible is an impossibility to share. You just get a feeling for it after a while. Somebody might say, well, that's really nice, but come in and crop it tighter and crop it tighter some more. You have to get rid of all the extraneous stuff so that everybody's just focusing on what's important. It's my secret. <laughs> And not to read too much into it, but you know, at the end of the story of Hanukkah, we have this jug of oil that no one thinks is gonna last eight nights, right? This tiny, tiny amount of something that seems so small, but is actually so meaningful. Can I make that metaphor, like this idea of packing so much into such a small space, artistically, visually, and also in terms of a message. It's kind of a beautiful holiday to be talking about stamps. It's a beautiful holiday to talk about stamps. Yes, I agree with you. So how did you choose this year's stamp? I met Jeanette four years ago, and I had seen her work, and she has a very active website and a lot of work that's shown on there. A similar piece of art to this direction was on her site and kind of called to me that it would be so different than anything else that we had done. And of course, I'm looking for something that's very energetic and beautiful and all of that, and that will work small. You know, it doesn't have to be a menorah, but it's very identifiable. It's iconic for the holiday. The designer Ethel Kessler reached out to me and said, we love a piece on your website and we want something just like it, but for Hanukkah. Jeanette Kuvenoren is a Judaic artist. She created the official 2022 Hanukkah stamp and she told me what it was like. I've been doing Judaic commissioned art for 38 years. I work in many different media. So mostly these days I would say commissioned fiber art, Torah covers, art curtains, chupot, anything that would go in a synagogue or in celebration of a simcha with a family. It's just really fun because I get to meet congregations and families from all over the world. During COVID, I was thinking, okay, that's it. Nobody's ever going to commission art again. It's been a great run, but career is over. And all of a sudden, the Postal Service called and Ethel said, we've chosen your art for the stamp. I designed what would become a small wall hanging, and that is hanging in the Postal Service Museum in Washington, D.C. And then they photograph it and they make it into a stamp. 
It's been a complete pleasure from beginning until now. And now is the fun of seeing it at the post office. For our listeners who have not yet run to the post office to buy out all of the Hanukkah stamps, describe to us this creation, this piece of art that will be on their stamps. My style tends toward vivid colors and different textures in fabric. And this is originally a wall hanging made of hand-dyed silks that I quilted into a small tapestry. The colors are oranges and reds and yellows where the flames of the nine branch Hanukkah menorah are. And then there's some blues and greens to symbolize earth and sky. It's very vivid. It has a really graphic look because I used black to outline the nine different branches of the Hanukkah menorah. And it really fills up the stamp with color. I think that's what appealed to Ethel, the designer, and the postal service for this stamp. It is in the style I use often for Torah covers and art curtains and things like that. I happen to like bright colors. It actually almost looks like stained glass. So it's so interesting to hear you say that this is actually like pieces of silk that you wove together. You picked up on something, Stephanie, that's really cool. The piece that the Postal Service saw online was arc doors that I made for a synagogue in Medford, Massachusetts. The design was first a wall hanging that I photographed, but the style of the wall hanging is stained glass. So when the picture of this wall hanging is on their glass doors, it looks like stained glass until you get up really closely and you realize it's a photograph of a fabric piece of art. So I love to combine the techniques of stained glass or the look of stained glass, but use fabrics and color in a different medium. One of the most emotional things about asking to have my art on a stamp really came to me like a day after the call from the Postal Service. My grandfather, who I called Opa, his wife was Edith, my grandmother, Oma, they came from Germany in 1939 with my mom, who was a child, and her brother. And they settled in upstate New York and they narrowly missed the worst of the Holocaust because they escaped from Berlin in 39. And my grandfather was forever grateful to the United States and he collected American stamps. And he had a very beautiful stamp collection and he tried to get me interested in it when I was little. But when I was, I think about 10 years old, his stamp collection was stolen and he was heartbroken. That was the end of my interest and until I was older and I was an artist and I thought, wouldn't that be the coolest thing in the world to have your art on a stamp? But that was a thought like 35 years ago or so. I think of this as a sort of a full circle moment that I'm able to see my art on a stamp and think of Opa and everything he felt about escaping from Germany and living in America. That's amazing. I'm, I'm crying. That's that's so incredible, this like full circle moment. And it's so Jewish and it's so American, right? Like this this symbol of Americana, this, this stamp. That's an incredible symbol of your journey, of your family's journey. It's so true. And this first day ceremony, um, I've learned a lot about stamp collecting and there's something called a first day ceremony. At it, you really feel this sense of old Americana. The veterans of foreign wars marches in with the flag. They invite local politicians to speak, local dignitaries. And it's just so beautiful America. So if you're feeling down about whatever the situation is in the world, I think the 
Postal Service really does a beautiful job of bringing us back to feel-good America. It's really true. There's something so wholesome and so endearing about stamps. But there's also so much that goes into creating these tiny works of art. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind this Hanukkah. Ethel Kessler, the USPS art director, has her own way of celebrating both the season and the work. Will you be sending Hanukkah cards this year? Is that part of your tradition? To my closest and dearest friends, yes. I think I know which stamp you'll be using. Yes, you do. But you know what? Sometimes when I'm sending out cards, I might put three or four of the Hanukkah stamps that I've art directed on the same envelope. So I don't so much worry about what's the price of postage as how can I make this in and of itself a little celebration. Producer Josh Cross again. Here's another track from Kosha Dills, this time with Nisim Black. Here's their latest update for the holiday, the Hanukkah song 3.0. Nights full of donuts, potato lockers and lachimes for the grown-ups. The Hanukkah has a shine when it glows up. Running inside, it's already getting colder. A man of miracles, I witness with my visuals. He's still in the business. Be careful who you listen to when they try to get at you. Like if it's real, I give it proof. Well, it's you and every other Jew who believe in the infinite. I don't have to give a hint, but we do on Hanukkah. Every time the candles lit, darkness dismissed like every single enemy. Nobody's on God's level, but they all pretend to be. All we know is victory. Eight nights glistening, many try to stop us They don't get a mention here Like a window, make it clear You know what today is Not saying it eight times You'll have to replay this Oh man, yes, Hanukkah You see all these miracles popping up Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick With Mark Oppenheimer and Liel Leibovitz We're produced and edited by Josh Cross Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarah Fredman Ader, Daron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Send us your Hanukkah cards at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinica supervision this week by Rabbi Ilana Friedman, the campus rabbi for Jewish Life at Duke, and Joyce Gordon, the director Director of Jewish Life at Duke. Love you both. We come to you from Tablet Studios, where the menorahs are gleaming, the lakas are frying, and the gratitude is flowing. Shalom, friends. Spitting bars on a big stage, my balls been raised. Racism in a half phase of natural. Let's come together now. Why is that? We have the truth. Grab the shamash seems to got our pass it to. And my lakas got the sauce of the big apple loo. I wish the oil on these plates and these candles could last longer. Yeah, forgive your family this year at the table. Eat a donut, tell mom to turn the song up. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, Sonica. You see all these miracles popping up. Back and forth the way we rock it, cup. All the lights is something you gotta love. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, Sonica. And the flow is so iconic. Back and forth the way we rock it, cup. Our people bend down, but now we coming up. You know we've been down, but we've come around. And God took us out for eight nights We make a great light And we show the world we've won